This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army veteran, law enforcement veteran, and the founder of Rogue Methods, Raul Martinez. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, defensive tactics, jujitsu, close quarters weapon fighting, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library, fast approaching 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Raul Martinez. Enjoy. Well, Raul, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Ashley Cummins for connecting us. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me and huge shout out to Ashley. She's such a great person. Yeah, absolutely. That was a phenomenal conversation and she's definitely leading from the front. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine afternoon? So today I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be home. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona right now. And it's, it's one of those days where I got a good early morning workout the family's happy. They're doing their portion of the day. And it's just, it's rare. And this is why I'm so excited to be home. It's rare that I'm home for more than one to two to three days, but it doesn't feel like, like it's really at home. It's like a recharge for the next session. So I've been home now for about seven or eight days and it's been a huge break. It feels amazing to be home. So this is where we are hanging out in Phoenix. Now, how do you navigate that balance? And I, I know that that term work-life balance is a kind of cliche term, but it's a reality, you know, I know a lot of guys that teach in the fire service that go to conferences and teach and, and then they're on their shift as well. And they have that passion for making their profession better. But at the same time, it is at the detriment sometimes to their family time. You're absolutely right. And there has to be a, and I hate to be cliche with the balance idea, but the balance, not in the sense of how we as individuals balance stuff, like the balance comes from the house uh, structure and how you've communicated with people at home. So my family's pretty rad in the sense that I told them early on what, what they're in store for, what my objectives are, what I want to be doing and how I can include them. So w- everything is we and us for, for me. And I think that's what helps keep the balance at home is that they know the mission, they know what I'm up to and I come home and I'm excited about it. I include them on the funny things that happened or the, the, the conversations at dinner with new people that we met I make everybody feel connected with what I'm doing. So it's, it's always this like, oh man, dad's coming home. We're going to talk about this. Or the, the, the missus is like, oh, so how was this trip in, in relation to the other trip? So really just keeping them included has really helped us stay connected, even with all of the travel. It is taxing though, because I'm missing little things here and there, but they always keep me filled in. Uh, but again, the biggest thing was getting everybody on the same page. So everybody knows what the mission is and they're all on board. And if there's ever any questions like, Hey, why are you doing this so much? Or why are you gone this many days versus, you know, somebody else doing something similar? 
And it's just a conversation like, hey, we're on this track. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And this is what needs to be done to accomplish it. So it's pretty cool. Now, where in your career timeline did the, the family start to form? Are you already in law enforcement or was it before then? Oh, man, that's such a loaded question. So I've, I've been divorced twice and mostly because of law enforcement. And it, it's a stressful job. It, it's a tricky one, especially when you get into the units and you get into like the undercover stuff where you're working 16 hours a day, changing two outfits a day, jumping into two, two three different cars, getting picked up by one and getting uh, dropped off by another car. So that was an interesting lifestyle time. Uh, but the stable family structure that I have now that I'm very fortunate to have now ha- happened in the last three to five years. And I think that's where I matured the most and that's where a lot of my growth and the business growth and even the family growth started to really flourish. But uh, yeah, it most recently has been the best dynamic, but I learned incredible lessons from being married twice and then divorced twice in the past. Well, I'm married and married twice, but divorced once. Um, so I can relate. And I wouldn't you know, blame specifically, you know, the the profession, but of course, they're they're you know the contributing elements. They amplify what's already there, and I think the unsung heroes of the first responder and, and the member of the military is the family that are holding the line when we're off doing our our business in uniform. Absolutely, you're right, and we don't give them enough credit. And I would have been a worse soldier, a worse officer, if the family structure wasn't sound and strong. So they were strong and they were doing everything they were doing. And, and for my case now, as a, as a more mature grown man, uh, I can look back and see how much more at fault I was uh, for those breakups, having all this, the support and the, the, the love and care. And I was still kind of just like, hey, I need to be the most hardcore cop and I need to work all the hours and I need to push people away and I need to do all this stuff. Right. Even though the support was there, uh, I was I failed to recognize it in time to salvage any of that. But again, those lessons feed into who I am now. And now I'm like, well, now I have to be really conscious and aware of everything, especially now that I'm even gone even more. But now I'm doing it for myself. So there's bigger goals. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of family, I'd love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I was born in Chicago uh, in the early 80s. And so, man, Chicago is such a fun place and it's still fun. It's just a little, it's changed a little bit now. But I came from, Mexico is an interesting place in the sense of uh, culturally how people act. So my dad's from one part of Mexico. My mother's from another part. They met in Chicago and then I came about, right? (laughs) So here I am in Chicago growing up in a very Hispanic community. So just incredibly like everything, everywhere, the stores, the food, everything. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. And even traveling from Mexico and back to the United States as a kid, often you couldn't tell the difference that you were living in the States versus you knew you were in Chicago versus knowing that you were in your hometown in Mexico. Uh, so we grew up in this, this area uh, on the south side of Chicago. It was still developing, very friendly as far as everyone was still, because it was all Hispanic communities, they all kind of still took care of each other. It was almost like West Side Story, but with Mexican people speaking Spanish. <laughs> you, know, you imagine three-story buildings and people yelling out, 
out the third floor window at another third floor window across the street. And then them yelling it down like, hey, Raul, your mom's looking for you. And I look over and I'd see my mom in the window at the end of the block, but three windows down, it made it to us. So it was very much like that. Um, and <laughs> it, it was fun because of how, how much freedom there was. And the freedom came from uh, after the parents were, were separated, right? Uh, mom went her way, dad went his way. We went with mom on and off every two weeks, uh, give or take. And he didn't move too far, but it was far enough that it, it, it took a drive to get there, which didn't matter. We saw him pretty, pretty frequently when he was available. Um, but the dynamic of freedom in that community was the parents, the single parents worked two to three jobs, <laughs> right? Just to maintain order and, and have everything covered. And so we were free most of the day because the parents were at work. We'd see them when they'd come home and they'd be gone before we would be gone to school in the morning. So it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of crazy wild times. And uh, later on, my so we're, my siblings and I are spaced seven or eight years apart perfectly. Like every seven years, another one came out, eight years, I think. So it was my little sister, myself, and then my older sister. And so we were the three that lived with mom. I have like seven or eight other brothers and sisters on my dad's side, uh, which are fantastic kiddos. I, I see them all the time when I visit home and they're great people. They're just, they were raised with a different mother. So a completely different dynamic, different style of interaction, uh, which is very evident actually. now that I think about it, uh, we all interact very differently because of our mothers, I think. Um, so three, two, uh, an older sister, a younger sister, myself, all grew up South side of Chicago, uh, all the way through my mom's next marriage or our mom's next marriage, which came, I think seventh or eighth grade. And then we moved to the North side of Chicago. And then that was like a whole new whirlwind of dealing with the stepdad and all this other stuff that, that came with that on the North side, which then changed because it was very, it was much more white America on the North side of Chicago. Right. So I think we were like one, I think we were the only Hispanic, Hispanic family in the neighborhood eh, within the first block or two radius. And then there was more scattered around uh, until we ended up all finding each other. But that's how they had that early portion. High school was a fun place. <laughs> Never went to high school with my siblings because we were so age uh, spaced right from each other. We have a big space between each other. So the older sister was always the hey, I did this. You need to do this better. The little sister was kind of like, well, what are you guys up to? And we're always like, ah, little kid, you know, we'll play with you, but get out of the way kind of deal. So it, it was it was fun throughout high school to have that older sister and then the younger one that I can look after and the older one that I can look up to. And then high school kind of was a breeze, <laughs> a lot of fighting, a lot of dumb stuff. And then right, where was I? That was all still Chicago North side. And then pushing there from there, it was just from high school. It became just a bunch of random jobs until nine 11. And then that's when the military start, stuff started for me. Well, going back, cause I mean, I obviously want to walk through your military career and nine 11 is a pivotal moment. I think for so many people that come on the show, um, Way, way early back, I heard you on a Disruptors podcast talking to, to BC um, about moving to Mexico for a few years and, and your family coming from the, the beef industry. So talk to me about that, what, what you remember. And obviously, I know you were very young, what you were told about about that. Yeah. 
So that, that I remember that <laughs> it, it was almost like a, and I said it playfully, I believe on their podcast as well. It was almost like a, 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 a kidnap situation <laughs> where my dad's like, I'm taking you to Mexico and you're going to grow up here. And I was small and I, I'm making those words up. Cause that's what I would imagine him saying. Cause I don't remember what he said when I was like four, <laughs> but that's what I would have imagined him saying. We're going to raise you in Mexico to do this. So we go down there and I spend the next few years back and forth. But for, for that first year where he took me, I remember my uh, mom telling us the story where he just vanished with me one day. And she was like, where is this dude? And I'd never came home for like a year and a half. She found out later that I was in Mexico uh, being raised by my dad and my uncles and the family there. They were kind of like the local butchers. They had the, the cattle. They, they had the, the slaughterhouse. And it's not like how we imagine slaughterhouses here. It's very small, a lot smaller scale. You're still cattle pronging uh, <laughs> the, the steer in the butt to get them to jump up onto like pickup trucks, right? And move them from one location to another. So I remember all that. I remember almost getting kicked at. Uh, I, one of the most violent things as a kid, I remember were like the horns coming through the cages and like dodging them. Like, holy shit, that would have sucked. Right. And then pronging them again, like just hitting, zapping them so they can chill out, uh, which then created more chaos. Uh, that was my life as a kid. It was <laughs> it was getting cattle onto pickup trucks, taking them to a slaughterhouse, watching my uncles. You know, they would soothe and settle the, the cattle before they would slaughter. So it was very like hello almost. Uh, and so as the cows settled, then they would just kind of like pet it. And it was like a, such a weird experience to see this. And I, I'll always remember it and I'll always tell the story. Uh, my uncle's petting this beautiful, like white toned gray, white cow. And he's just kind of like petting it, gets the blade out after he had sharpened it before he walked into the room. So they never did anything showing a blade to the animals. I feel like animals know. And I, now that I, that I studied that a little bit more animals do know, like when you're about to cause them harm. So he would pet it and keep it and soothe it and soothe it and soothe it. And then he would kind of like cut the eyes and then he'd pull the blade out and like slice the throat open. And as soon as the, the throat was open and started bleeding, they would raise the animal up and then they would hang it upside down and it would just bleed out. And it was as quick as they could. And then I remember watching, and I was like, man, he really like likes that thing. And I don't know where this thing's bleeding all over the floor. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that, that took a turn for the worst. Um, but it was part of the process and they explained it all after it was almost like an initiation stuff. But then they, they explain everything after, right? Like we're grateful for the animal. We had to treat it with kindness. We, we fed it its whole life, right? We did everything possible for it to have a good life. And now it's its turn to give to the community. So we were the ones that were pr providing me, one of two um, butchers, uh, butcher families that was providing meat and then animal resources for, for the locals. So after we would process the animal and get everything uh, pushed out for, for food reasons, uh, we would then do like the skulls for other things. And then we would do the hides to our local um, rope maker or whip makers. There was a whip making family that they specialize in just making whips, all different sizes. And I remember hanging out with them too, a lot, but we would give them the hides. And then it was cool to see the one animal give so much to different parts of the community. Right. And then even us, we'd, we'd, we'd get a piece of it to go home and that's what we would eat. Or they would grill it right then and there. And we would have a piece right then and there if it was lunchtime, something. Uh, however, that played out that day, um, that, that specific moment, that, that day, that animal was, was really cool. And 
just remembering how, how peaceful it was. And then I don't know where blood red everywhere. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was telling them. And growing up there was that it was cowboys and learning to ride with a cool freaking uncle who was, uh, he tamed, I don't know if you tame horses, but he taught their horses were tamed. He taught them how to dance. So he had this killer mustache, right? And he smoked the pipes. His nickname was a Pipas, So we called him pipe and he would smoke this pipe and he would ride a horse, but he wouldn't. All I remember is that he never rode it straight when he was coming to talk to you. He would ride it sideways. So he'd come up sideways and talking to you and the horse would turn and the horse would turn the other way. And the horse was constantly on one of the front legs, like popping one up. It was the coolest thing to see how he had these horses so well trained. And he would, this is what his primary job was, was to train the local horses for random chadro events or cowboy events in in the Mexican circuits there. Cause we still had the arenas and we still had bullfights and we still had chicken fights, all that good stuff. I think they still do it now, but it's, it's more controlled now. And so that uncle did that. Another uncle was a farmer or another uh, brother of my grandfather, which we just called him uncles. But I guess, what would that be? Your grandfather's brother. It's like a great uncle, I think. Yeah. See, I don't think we had that. I don't think there's a Spanish word for a great uncle. I think it's just uncle. (laughs) Either way. So we would hang out with them because, and it's crazy because they were, they were already older, but man, looking at it now, like, at that age, they had to have been like 60, 70, but they were like, they look like how I look now. Like it's crazy, right? Healthy food, nothing's processed. Everything's grown nearby. And uh, it was just, it was a different time. So he would do the horses. My other uh, uncle was kind of more like the badass. <laughs> he was like the enforcer of the family, made sure that all the, all the stuff that required rent was always collected and that, that was taken care of. So he was, a, he was a pretty cool dude. That's where all of us kind of started getting meaty. We're all meaty dudes up top, especially. Uh, and I think it all came from him. All my uncles, my dad's brothers kind of look like me. We all have this like structured setup. We just look like good force of labor. <laughs> like we can carry stuff. <laughs> um, and so the dancing horse uh, uncle, which was fantastic as, as a child to watch these horses do these marvelous things and always every different color horse braided tails, braided manes. Like it was a, a cool thing for, for being a small town. I think it was like a 10,000 person town, but after, so after a few years of that <laughs> mom shows up and she's like, all right, we're going back. So we go back to the United States. And then that's when like the on and off started really happening back and forth. So after, after that big event, I basically learned how to eat, go to the bathroom, manners, basically take care of myself uh, I mean, to the level of what a five, six, seven-year-old could do. And uh, I learned all that there. So English then became my second language. So English... Yeah, I learned English a little bit late. I, I knew English when I left. I learned all the English that I know post learning all the Spanish that I know, which is really cool. I think I still dream in Spanish, so that must be still my primary language. <laughs> I think that's what they say. Well, this is why I love these early early life stories. I mean, you know, where everyone thinks of Tokyo Drift was where where that started, but obviously Tijuana Drift is obviously the the origins of that with the horse. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, also taking you know when you describe 
you know, the the butchering in that particular scenario and the philosophy behind it, then it it's resonates the same way as you think of a lot of Native American tribes. And so that indigenous respect for the food, having the gratitude, understanding where it comes from, and as you said, it not being covered in chemicals and not being processed. To me, that's what a lot of the messages in this podcast are about on the, on the health side, is that we don't have to invent healthy stuff. We have to devolve back to where we were doing it just fine up to about 100 years ago. No, that's a great point. I'm glad you said that because I, I agree with that. That's how we try to eat here at home now. I'm very um, meat and fruit and honey and kefir based. That's what I eat primarily. I'll delve off. I took a, a couple of weeks off and I was just eating whatever came to mind. And then all that they did was remind me how much better I feel when I eat the way I'm supposed to be eating, right? I'm not bloated. My sleep isn't weird. My, my poop cycles are, are off. They're weird. They're, they're not predictable. And everything that I had, down, like food, has such an impact on everything. Mood, sexual drive, motivation, man, you name it, sleep. Uh, every even testosterone levels are, are are affected by a little bit of good sun sun exposure and some some good food. So all of that stuff, uh, I eat all these junk food and I'm just like, man, that's such a terrible idea. All right, let's not do that one again. Um, but I go through these craving bouts before I matured again. In those times, I would eat whatever and just work out hard and hope that it, it was going to do good for my body, not knowing right that all the stuff is in the food. Um, I know this isn't a health, <laughs> I don't know if we're going down the health route with this one today, but either way, the, the point is that you're right, uh, going into healthier food, uh, it, it is a, a, a de-evolution of, of concepts. It's not like, hey, let's invent the new best thing. How about we just eat more practically and stuff that was alive a little while ago is not what you should be eating, not something that has a shelf life of 35 years, you know? Absolutely. Well, yeah, McDonald's slogan is I'm loving it. We'll tell that to your bum hole the next day because it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, even just your performance because it slows you down. Stuff that's really dry then dehydrates you and you have to get more water in your body and people are already not drinking enough water. So their balance is off. So now you got people falling over just because they didn't drink enough water, but they can't put that together because it's too simple. It's too simple of a reason, right? That how could it be that I'm a little older now but I'm falling and it's simply because I didn't drink enough water because I drank too many Diet Cokes. Well, shit, look at that, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's a simple answer, right? It is. It's, 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 that's the thing. You could literally have a pamphlet on how to re, you know, reverse the obesity and mental health crisis and it would be just a few pages. Simple, simple stuff. Get outside, have community, eat some, you know, things from the soil the way they're actually grown. And, and if you are going to eat meat, then you know, treat the animal with respect, feed it what it's supposed to be fed. And then, you know, when you slaughter it, don't do anything to it. Just just cook it. So, yeah. So with this journey, you come back to the U.S. As you start progressing into high school, what kind of sports or athletics are you doing at that point? So there was a mix of touching on all things. Because So our family wasn't very athletic in, in, in the sense that, you know, hey, you guys are going to do softball and baseball and this and that. So it was kind of like pick and choose and play, play what you want. And if you like it, you like it. And again, there's still no real supervision. It's kind of just running wild and, and doing whatever you wanted to do, uh, which was interesting because we, I, I think I could have made a lot worse choices than I did. So I wonder where, where all the good choices came from. I made a lot of bad choices too. Um, but the sports were everything from football to wrestling to baseball 
to skateboarding to not doing anything for a year and then just kind of hanging out uh, a little bit of boxing, a lot of jujitsu. I still do jujitsu to this day. And bo- I mean, I box with my friends and little things like that. Spar matches here and there that, that never went away. Neither did the jujitsu. Like I still love jujitsu. I still do it to this day. Um, but nothing organized long-term because we didn't have, it would almost didn't make sense because we didn't have the family structure to be there. Like, you know, how you have soccer moms and like baseball dads and like football dads. We didn't have any of that. So we're like, ah, nobody cares enough. I'm just going to go do this other shit. And we would just run around rampant in the streets doing, <laughs> doing dumb stuff. So it was a little different in that regard, but school was easy to me. So, uh, it was, it was easy in the sense academically, not that I'm saying I'm smart in any way. I think I figured out how to problem solve what they were asking me to do. Like, Hey, this is the homework. Well, that's easy. I'll get the answers from the book because you give me the book to do the answers. So this is really easy, right? So my grades weren't horrible. School felt easy. And then if I knocked it out of the way, nobody was on me about everything else that I wanted to do. So I always managed to do well in that regard. Well, you mentioned 9-11, but prior to that, career aspirations, what were you dreaming of around that school age? Oh, man. So ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be in the military. I had the G.I. Joes. I played the G.I. Joes. Never wanted to be a cop. The cop thing came later, and it came as a surprise, and we'll get into that. Uh, but the, the, law enforcement, or the, the military stuff was, was like this thing that I wanted to do forever. And my mom remembers me talking about it. And a lot of it had to do with the, the service return, the exchange for what the country gave my family. Like it gave us a cool place to live. It was very different than Mexico. It was still fun. It was, it was fun both places. So it wasn't like a trade, um, but it was a cool, um, it was cool to have both. And my parents were super stoked. They're like, man, this is a great place. Our, our, our families want to be here. Our sisters are here. Like the younger, uh, siblings of theirs. And they were flourishing. My dad opened up a business. He still has those businesses to this day. He helps establish all of his brothers and sisters that, that came to Chicago. We've been established my mom's side with some businesses. And all of that was just like, holy crap, if they came here, they still don't know a lick of English, which is phenomenal to have businesses in America and not know English, right? Uh, and to, to, be, to see them be so happy. And then like, to me, the, the, what was the return was you'd see these commercials like, you know, America first and all this you know, patriotism via the service of the military. And we grew up with firefighters mostly in our neighborhood on the south side before we moved to the north side. Uh, the owner of the building we lived in was a firefighter. His brother across the street who owned the building was a firefighter. And then another guy was a firefighter. They were all firefighters. So I saw the way they were treated in the community as well. You know, they'd come home with their little fire logo shirts and they're like, hey, they love these guys. And there I started to see how providing a service to the community or to the country was this thing that was looked at admirably. And I was like, hey, man, I, I want to give back. I want to be a part of that. And, and ever since the, the south side of Chicago, that path was leading me towards the military. Not in a like, I want to be a soldier. I want to go kill bad guys kind of mentality, but more like the patriotism. Like, how can I give what, uh, how can I give this country what it gave us in an opportunity? And, and I'll give it my time. I'll give it this amount of time. I'll go and serve. I'll do what I think is, is, is righteous in, in the name of return of service. 
uh, and in, as an exchange for what my family has and what they don't have to do now for it, right? Uh, other than pay taxes because everybody pays taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so you had that in the back of your mind. So talk to me about 9-11 through your eyes and then walk me through how that actually took you through the military doors. So 9-11, we were hanging out at a buddy's house. Uh, I was before we had class. And I was sitting there and it, it was kind of like a haze for everybody. Like it was a little hazy thing for everybody. Nobody kind of knew what was exactly happening. And it, we all caught the first plane and then the second plane. Right. And we're like, holy shit, this is like real right now. And so that was just like a weird time. I remember that whole week being a blur as information came out, as we started to figure out what was going on. And, and even then there was still just so much misinformation and, Little by little, as, as they started to spin up, right? Because two, two years later, 2000, 2003, they launched the invasion. So that was a little bit after all that, right? So 9-11 set this tone. And then I was like, all right, cool. This is going to be interesting. 2003, they launch. I'm like, okay, now it's real. What am I doing? What's going on? Okay. Uh, I fix and, and line out everything that I need to fix in order to be able to join and leave without having any loose ties here in, at home. So about a year and a half, two years, a year and a half later from that, that uh, 2003, when I noticed, when I started to follow the invasion, all that good stuff, I was like, cool, this is what we're doing. I took me a little bit of time to get all those things in line. And then it took me about four months to actually leave once I started the paperwork process, because I initially started with the Marine Corps. I was like, we're doing this Marine thing, right? Because the Marines, uh, (laughs) and uh, I had a neck tattoo. And it showed beyond the t-shirt line. So they were like, no go on the tattoo. Can't get you in. Al-Qaeda will be offended. Yeah, (laughs) right? Um, They're like, you can't have this tattoo because that tattoo is not part of our service regulations. And I was like, all right, well, let me get it removed because I really want to do the Marines. Let me get it removed. And so I go to get it removed. I get it down. And they're like, well, now you have this arm tattoo. And it was okay before, but now three, two, three months later, it's not anymore. And I was like, fuck, all right. They're like, well, let us walk you over to the army guys. And I was like, all right, let's do it. I want to just go at this point. I just want to go. And so I, I go over to the army dudes. The army guys are like, yeah, man, we'll take you. We've even got this awesome job that you'd be good at. Like they had it all laid out. It was pretty funny. Um, none of it in my favor, by the way. So I joined the military with zero rank, zero anything. Um, for prospects of, of promotion. I had, to, I had to do that all on my own. So from zero rank to an E6 uh, when I left was was, <laughs> was funny because there was like, oh man, I went in as an E3 or as an E4. Uh, we had rank when we went in. Um, but my recruiters were just like, hey, there's another number. Let's add them, add them to the list. So yeah, at around 2005, I, I take off. I start basic training get really into it, man, I fell in love with the soldiering process, like in love with it, the, the leadership aspects, the uniformity of everything, the control of schedule. And it is really a controlled schedule because they're getting you used to the idea of repetitive stuff and not complaining. And then uh, not focusing on stuff you can't really do anything about. So you'd be stuck somewhere for hours or days even, and you just can't go anywhere because you might have to go somewhere else from this location. So they're prepping you constantly for what it was going to look like to be deployed for, for combat, just hold, hold a position for a while and then do something and then hold another position for a while, which it's constant training for it. But I fell in love with the ceremonies 
the 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 idea of of rank and leadership and promotion and the capabilities that came from all that. And so, to me, it was it was one of the coolest experiences having come from a very little structured family running around Chicago, right, with parents that working two three jobs and nobody's really overseeing anything you're doing to like completely regimented. So I went from one lifestyle to another and really truly enjoyed it. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I, I, I could have used this a long time ago, right? The, the, the structure and the, <laughs> the reform almost. <laughs> um, so it felt great to, to be a part of something like that. And so to me, uh, that was just a new chapter. It felt like a completely new chapter, a new era in who I was gonna become or who I was becoming at that time. And it really led to, to a lot of great things that would structurally now I use a lot of military style uh, in leadership. I use a lot of military style in my business tactics and, and just family approach as well. Well, a question I always like to ask anyone who's deployed and the, the backstory is simply when you are a civilian, you get a very polarized view of our soldiers of war, either very pro kill them all that God sort them out, very anti, they're all baby killers. And that's about it. You know, pick a side. And you don't really hear the voices of the men and women that basically are children that we send off to, you know, fight for our country. So this two-part question, the first part, regardless of politics that sent you over to wherever you were initially deployed your first combat zone, was there an aha moment where you realized that there were some horrific people on this planet that needed to be taken care of? Definitely. Uh, we, I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that in my early days anyway, having dealt with a little bit of crime in Chicago, uh, a little bit on the flip side of the positive side of the law. Uh, so I knew that there was bad people, but it was different here in the States. The, the things we were preparing for overseas and the whole like the beheadings, the capturing of Americans, blowing shit up by blowing yourself up and killing a bunch of innocent people. That was new. That, that wasn't something we were dealing with crime wise in, in America. So it was, it was a different take on a familiar subject, right? The, the violence of man upon man. And so it wasn't foreign, but it was different. It was like, holy shit, if we mess up here, this isn't going to be like, oh, you got shot by a rival gang member. Or you got run over by a car. These dudes are going to do some serious things and they're going to advertise it. And it's all in the name of this weird, like, the ideology was weird. It wasn't the, the religious side of it or the politics of it. It was the, the way they spun the ideology into this whole like almost degrading. We control everything about the prisoner until the moment we take their life. And even that we control. So it was very, to me, it was very like, it was like very ritualistic. And I was like, okay, cool. So this is an enemy that is thoughtful. They're, they're thinking things beyond the point of just kill that dude and move on. Right. They want to inflict all sorts of, of trauma, right? Trauma is not only the event, it's everything around it as well. And so they were trying to inflict all sorts of these. So that enemy was a very different one. So for us to see that firsthand and deal with it firsthand. And I remember we captured a radio, an enemy radio, and we could hear in the translators, like, holy shit, he would get super excited because he's like, these motherfuckers are about to put bombs under sheeps and they're going to walk them through your formations. They're going to blow everybody up. Like, Don't go that way. They're, they're like freaking out. You're like, dude, slow down. It's, it's the evening. We're not even doing that yet. And he's like, I know, but they're planning it. And they'd be so pumped and excited. Um, but I remember that being a different enemy. It almost, it, it almost felt like another world, which it, I mean, the, 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 there was a lot of similarities in landscape, architectural setups, 
And even the people, uh, when we were in the Middle East, it felt like Mexico. It felt like a, a more poor Mexico, like pastel colors, wrought iron fences with all the intricate turns and twists, right? Um, clay buildings. And then the people looked like Mexican people, but with different clothes. So it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't totally foreign, which was another blessing in disguise of having spent that much time in Mexico, right? Um, culturally wise, at least it was similar, but different uh, in the sense of, I mean, uh, obviously culture wise, religion wise, and then the purpose. And most of the people weren't terrible, but you just didn't know. So you kind of had to treat everybody like they were fucking potential bad guys. But that was a different, that was a different take, uh, like I said, on a familiar subject, which was violence upon man from man. And there, it was just, it was different to call home and be like, Hey, what are you guys up to? And they're like, yeah, we're just playing in the yard. And I'm like, Holy fuck. All right. Well, I love you guys. I'm about to go do this thing for the next three days and hopefully nobody gets fucked up. And so it was different. It was different to fight an an organized group, which is again, a blessing in disguise that I think that if you didn't have this and you don't like there's so much to it. You're fighting in a semi well-organized group of dudes. They have a network, they have supply lines. Like you're fighting a real fight now um, in regards to military application versus like the onesie twosie as a cop, right? You deal with one ship bag or two and maybe a burglar. That's a little bit different. Um, this is like well-organized, mildly trained, and they have the will to fucking commit themselves to death to try to take out Americans. So that's that, that, that was a different animal. But once you swallowed it and you were like, all right, this is what we're dealing with. You kind of upped yourself as well. You were definitely more aggressive. And I talk about this in regards to law enforcement as well. If the enemy changes, the, the good guys dealing with the enemy change as well. We do have to get a little more aggressive. We do have to be a little bit more violent. And unfortunately that's what ends up being portrayed to the masses, right? So they get to see all of us, gunning down everything. And then like, yeah, look, that's what Americans do. I was like, well, fuck, that's not how we started doing things. Right. That was the result of dealing with this. And so this is what we're seeing in, in, in crime. Now you're getting a more bold criminal, which is going to, the more bold and criminal came from the softening of the police style. So now the criminals like, Oh fuck, these dudes are soft. That's not how it used to be. I remember talking to old school guys in Chicago when I was a young cop and they would be like, yeah, we never fuck with the police because they whoop your ass. Now you guys don't do shit. So now the young guys are like, fuck these guys. And then they go and beat the shit out of cops. Uh, So what's going to happen is we're going to have to go back again, right? Digressing or devolving back to more uh, aggressive tactics, taking back that high ground. And then the criminal element is going to be like, shit, well, I don't want to get beat up. So we're going to be less assholes until the cops then become less assholes. And then the criminals again are going to be like, well, it's time for us to be the assholes. And then we play catch up. So it's going to be this like slinky effect constantly. And we saw that in the early parts of the war, we would get more crazy. They would get more crazy. We'd up their ante and we'd up it and we'd up it and we'd up it until we won or I don't even know what we did, if we won or not. We'll say we did um, for the sake of uh, (laughs) good fortune. But uh, yeah, that's the stuff that I think the public didn't get a chance to see is that we were always trying to one up the bad stuff that was being done to us on the battlefield. And so by the time it got to the public, you guys were all or the public was already seeing uh, 
the threefold effect of us having to deal with more violence, more brutality, and having to counter it with that same brutality. Well, this is why I love this question because every answer is different. Some are very short, and you know, it, and this is a you know glance over that topic, and some really dive in. and And I don't think it's really portrayed that a young man or woman who's just graduated high school goes into a foreign land and not the possibility of being shot or blown up, but the possibility of being captured and then decapitated on television in front of their parents or set on fire and dragged through the streets in front of their parents. And you add that extra layer of horror and, and you're absolutely right. There's that, there's that deliberate trauma projection that they're trying. They're trying to create that fear. And then a reverse engineer to your 18-year-old son or daughter, would you, you know, would you A, want to even send them there, or B, would you at least understand that there would be an escalation of violence if that was what happened when you were captured? You know, so this the the, the gray area in between is where we actually as civilians need to understand and, and listen to these stories because it's not black or white. There's not a good guy, you know, in, a, in an SS uniform. Excuse me, in a, <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. A bad guy in an SS uniform and a good guy in an, in an allied uniform. And, you know, this, this guy is a complete shitbag that knew about Auschwitz. And this guy goes to church and teaches yoga back in America. You know what I mean? It's not like that. There's these undulations of you know some sometimes the allies are the, are the crooks in a situation and some you know most of the time it's the other way around but when you just take a soundbite of as you said a group of soldiers you know attacking a certain village where there's no uniforms and you have no idea if that person is a local you know shaman or the local terrorist and then you think that these are children that haven't had a chance to even see the world yet they graduated you know, an entire lifetime sitting behind a desk, you gave him a gun, you stuck him in a desert. So it's so important that we hear these kind of perspectives. It is. It, 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 I wish I would have had something like this. And I think you're doing a great job by getting these stories out and getting the next wave prepared if they ever have to. At least they have, we have documented some of this. And I think it's still young in the documentation phase. Where we're actually now starting to see. So early, <laughs> early military exit you don't leave and act the way I'm acting now and talking about emotions and being broken by things and being sad and then recovering and then failed this and failed relationships. That doesn't come right away. That's like five to 10 to almost 15 years later from those uh, traumatic moments in time. If they do carry over, I, I again, I was raised very, uh, not alone again, like unsupervised where I had to like, figure shit out for myself emotionally and physically. And a lot of things were like, well, fuck that didn't work. All right. That sucked. Let's get, let's get it better. Um, that's kind of how I dealt with, with the post trauma events of, of combat was I came home and I was like, fuck, I need to get good at not being fucked up. All right, well, let's read some books. Let's figure this shit out. Let's talk to some people. Uh, it took me a good five years to find balance and then after that, I was like, okay, cool. In, the, in that five years of figuring all this out, this is where we are now. Let's continue to make progress. How do we make progress? We share the story so that other people don't make the same mistakes. Now you're cutting down what took me five years to maybe three years for somebody else, to maybe two years for another, to maybe one year for the youngest guy who just left. Um, but yeah, documenting these, these things, I think is a very important thing. And I don't think it's being done that, that widespread. So it's really cool to have you doing things like this and, and collecting these little stories for, for people to hear. And the flip side of it, right? The young men that, again, it's, I struggle with certain groups 
that are really keen to give advice on things they have no real life experience on. Not that you can't do that because you can definitely at a scholarly level give plenty of advice on any topic, right? But how are you, how is it that a dude who's not married going to give a couple advice on a separation or a divorce or something similar, you know, not that it can't be done. I'm not saying that it can't be done. There's just something special about experience to certain events that allow the, the actual advice to have a little bit more weight. Right. But how do you prepare an 18 year old to be dealing with a dude who wants to chop his head off and showcase it to the world to show brutality? It's really difficult to do. And luckily for us, and, and there weren't many, right? There weren't many. It got better over time. And this is where we saw the, the decline in aggressiveness from the military. As dudes would rotate into combat and come back, they would share only what was the most prevalent thing that worked that time. And it was shoot more, shoot faster, shoot until nothing's moving. That's going to win the day. So that's, that's what we started to see this escalation of combat. And it was awesome. Right. I'm not going to deny that that shit was rad watching everybody shit fucking gun down an area where we knew bad dudes were shooting at us. And but that was how we were figuring those things out. But nobody talked about uh, how to resolve the aftermath with the people that were shitbags, the people that were still trying to do good for, for their country. Right. Um, instead, we became early on. We became this like heavy invasion force. And then we try to clean it up later because we realize, oh, shit, we can't just be stepping on everybody's neck and expect them to stand up and say thank you when we're done fucking stepping on their neck. Right. Um, So I think we learned that a little bit on the flip side. So I'm going to venture to say that if we have another conflict, we'll be balancing both better. Um, But again, that I don't I didn't get I didn't have the luxury to speak with like very many World War Two guys or even Vietnam guys that were willing to share. I think they had such a different experience that they almost didn't want to share a lot of stories. It's hard to find guys from those eras that really want to. And I think uh, generationally, they were a different people. They were a lot better at compartmentalizing things and they didn't share it with others to help other people be better. A few did. I've heard some great stories. Uh, Dick Thompson tells a fantastic story about his time in Vietnam, Um, but there aren't very many, but these, these little lessons are the lessons that I think experience is one of those things that that really brings it. And hopefully we can retain some of this in media like this. Absolutely. I had a guy, uh, Frank Wright, who was a Marine. Was he a Marine Raider? I think he was a Raider. Um, He was on Iwo Jima and he was injured, wounded, excuse me, wounded on Iwo Jima. And that's one of the first World War II generation, you know, members of the military I've ever heard talk about mental health. And he wrote a book on PTSD and it was phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I mean, through the art of storytelling, you look at ancient cultures, whether it's, you know, the Aztecs or the Native Americans or, you know, African nations, when they come home, the warriors tell the stories. And you read uh, Sebastian Junger's tribe. He talked, you know, gives many, many examples. And that's how you transition. That's how the people that you fought for understand what their warriors went through you know and we've, we've kind of lost that it's just this well you know you transition out you go to germany or italy and then you come back to the u.s and you show up in your hometown and it's like all right you, you want to get a milkshake it's like well i was just killing people 24 hours ago can you give me a second but yeah so i think that that transition element whether it's the military or the first responder professions that's an area that we definitely have to do a lot better in yeah i think because those old stories and the old warriors would come and they would sit around and they would tell their stories in these small communities. I think because of how vast the country is, uh, we don't have those little town hall type 
meetings, right? Where young men can come back, young women can come back and kind of like engage their community. Like, Hey, these are the things that we did. Uh, most of the time is like, Hey, thank you for your service. And the kid just goes right back to flipping burgers or right back to working at dad's mechanic shop or, or doing something similar. Uh, they don't have that, that experience or that exposure or even the, the support to tell the story locally, right? Like, hey, you know, little Stevie went over overseas and now he's back and he works at the shop, but that's it. They're not like, hey, let's get him over. Let's talk to him. Let's figure out what we missed. Um, I think we are very short uh, in attention spans as Americans. So we'll see something. We'll, oh, well, we're winning. Support America. We'll do something that, that fails to meet the, the, the happy guy quota. And now we're bad guys in the military. And now all of the population is mad at you. And then you do something good and then they're happy again. Uh, so it wasn't like this, this wave of continuous support. There was the wave of patriotism, uh, but sometimes they were mad at you and sometimes they weren't. And it, it, was, it was tricky and it was weird. You didn't want to tell your story over here because maybe they're not pro-military. You did tell your story over here. And it's like, well, you could have done better because you know, this, or you could have, the whole thing was just difficult to navigate at times, depending on the circles of people you were around. So telling the story was difficult. So you, you kind of touched on the people in the countries, you know, we, we kind of have a, another tendency as civilians to go, oh, we're at war with Afghanistan or with Iraq, which is not the case. The people of those countries are being terrorized by shitbags who we're sending our boys and girls over to try and mitigate. So the other side of this this question, were there memories where there was, you know, kindness and compassion amidst this chaos that you witnessed? Because we don't normally hear the incredible altruism, whether it's the native people, whether it's our military, amidst this this combat zone that we place them in. Absolutely. There, there, there's plenty of stories. Uh, there's plenty of things that we experienced that even that I experienced uh, as an individual mostly was our interaction with the interpreters, which it kind of fits this and it doesn't because most of the time they would bring interpreters from other regions so that the locals didn't know them so that they wouldn't be as in danger. Right. So they were bringing interpreters from like the South to work in the North, the North to work in the South or from neighboring countries that knew the language. That way they didn't have any like ties right to the local community. Um, our relationship with them was great. And they were kind of, they were confused just like we were like, if we're looking at a village of 500 people, there's a group of 20 dudes in there that all fit into the, the community. They look like everybody. They, they all mold themselves to be like everybody. And the community knows who they are for the most part, right? If they're in a certain area, they're like, well, those dudes aren't from here. We've been here our whole lives. We don't know these guys. They just showed up with a few truckloads of stuff. and They occupied the one house that nobody lived in. So now they're living in it. And they wanted to be a part of, from what I remember, the community didn't want certain bad guys in those areas. Now, there was different types of bad guys. There was just like the malicious intent dudes who were just there to wreak havoc. And then there were other guys who were actually bringing money into the communities and trying to like sway the opinion. So not only were they doing dumb shit, planting bombs, shooting at Americans or shooting at the locals, but they were also bringing in money from other countries to like calm the population down via some funds, Right. Uh, so, and what, what we found was if we can pay them a little bit more than, than the bad guys are paying them, then we can stop that line of, of defense for them, right? They're not going to support them if we're already feeding this. So we're trying to win this on all, on all fronts, but we did get a chance to, to hang out with a lot of the local sheiks, which were great people. They were fun guys. They would bring us into their home. We would have dinners with them and tea and we would sit around and they would tell us stories of, 
what it was like before, <laughs> right? Their pastimes and how they used to flourish and there used to be farms and there used to be, um, uh, what are they called? Like fish nurseries. So there was fish in the desert. They would bring in fish and they would raise fish in these little, uh, little ponds that they would build, man-made ponds. And it was, it was, it was such a cool thing to hear that they were very, a very flourishing people and they knew to support, you know, the, like it was still picking the worst of the bad. Right. But he was safe. The, the, their leaders, right. Back before. And a lot of people had great things to say about Saddam, even though we were coming there thinking that the reason we were there was for fucking Saddam. And they were all like, Oh man, he wasn't that bad. You know, he did this, he did that, but he wasn't terrible. We had what we needed and things were okay. Uh, so the people were great. I, I, I wondered while I was there, like, man, would there ever be a way to come back and engage with these people again, like as a friend? Because some we did build friend friendships, whether they were true friendships or not. It's hard to say. I was a young man then. I would like to believe that they were genuine or maybe they were just to, to, to try to break our lines, our defensive lines, right, to get us into our, feel, our, our feelings. But there were some people that we built really great relationships with. We were sad to see them. Uh, we were sad to leave them when we left. And uh, I always wondered, like, hey, what would this have been like if because we knew they weren't the problem, like you said, they weren't the one waging war against us. It was other people coming into their land and using their land as the battlefield. So we were just having to, like, deal with those bad dudes in the midst of all of these people who some didn't even want to be involved. Some wanted to help them. Some wanted to help us. And again, that made it all very much more tricky because now you don't know who's where, what. And you definitely knew who wasn't on any side. They just didn't care. They were indifferent to you. They were indifferent to everybody else around them. They were just kind of like pissed off that this was going on. Um, so it was, it was a, an interesting experience in that regard. But I do, I do remember a lot of really good people. And I remember thinking to myself, like, hey, it would be cool to uh, have had a friendship with some of these people had this not been going on. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to have... Um some of those the the men that were brought over johnny walker codename um was initially an interpreter ended up um joining the seals i had one of the afghani commandos on here uh, fahim fazli who was actually had moved to the us become an actor and then put his acting um profession on hold and joined the marines for a couple of years or was attached to the marines as an interpreter for a few years so you get to hear these stories and even if fahim's um, interpretation of the withdrawal was fascinating from an Afghan man. He's like, we're getting all these people out, but you're actually taking some of the greatest minds out of Afghanistan too. So now we're actually setting them up for a greater failure. So hearing all these different perspectives on, you know, on the occupation, on, on these great men and women that supported the allied forces, the, the, the way that's, as you touched on some of our, you know, kind of, um, nuclear, military tactics initially i mean that you know metaphorically created more more enemies and you start as a civilian to kind of put these pieces of the puzzle together okay all right so it's not all afghanis and Af and iraqis and you know that you don't have uniforms so you you send these children over and they don't know who's the good guy who's the bad guy some died for for you know defending american lives some afghanis and some some iraqis and some as you said were horrendous and they were decapitating people and when you see that whole universal thing again you walk away going we need to make sure this fucking never happens again or at least prevent it unless it's completely unpreventable and stop letting these fucking politicians the moment another conflict shows up where their friends are going to get extremely rich from it that we just send our children off again and then wave a flag and beat our chest 
For sure. Uh, and that's a great take, actually. When you start removing all the people that were there for the right reasons, um, even locals that were there that were not having to remove it, it almost sends them into uh, a cultural recession where it goes back to whatever the smartest dude in charge is. And most of those dudes weren't, um, they weren't interested in diplomacy or the evolution of their country. It was more, how do we perpetuate and make our ideology bigger, better, and stronger? So it, that's an interesting one. I'm gonna have to look into that. I like that idea. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Really great conversation. So you obviously, you know, see all this combat, different waves that you said of the tactics. Talk to me about what made you decide to transition out of the military. And let's talk about that transition because you kind of touched on it before. It doesn't matter whether it's someone, you know, a, a veteran coming out or whether it's a first responder or a firefighter um, transitioning out of their career. We have the tendency to identify as that uniform. We have that tribe. We had that sense of purpose. We had that mission. And then a lot of us come back and it's like, you know, avoid. Now, now what? And that can be a, a, a real struggle for a lot of people. So what made you transition out? And then talk to me about your experience. Well, for me, and I thought initially when I joined that that was going to be my 20 years. Like some people think that way. And I, I didn't know what I was thinking, but I was like, this is cool. I could do this for the long run. It never turned out that way, even in law enforcement. I ended up doing like five, six years everywhere. And then I was like, all right, on to the next, on to the next. And I think it's very free spirit to do things like that. And I'm not tied to an idea. I'm not governed by money or the, the need of something set in stone or, or safe. I'll figure it out really became uh, the attitude that I ended up having. And I still have to this day, I'll figure shit out. And it's not that bad. And uh, so for, I didn't want to leave. First of all, I didn't want to leave <laughs> um, Iraq. So I was like, all right, uh, how can I stay here longer? So I, I jumped on a rear detachment and I stayed an extra three months, right? Everybody had already cycled back. They did their thing. I was like, ah, I'll do the rear D. I'll stay back. I, so I stayed back an extra three months, uh, in that time is kind of where I was like, all right, well, now all my friends are gone. Now we're stuck here doing more shit. Um, now it's different. So I, I had already, I, I, that and a few times I butt heads with some leadership, which had already put a sour taste in my mouth for, for having to go back with them and be with them. I was like, ah, I kind of like don't want to do that. And that was another part of a good reason why I did the, 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 the rear D and stayed back so I could hang out and do new shit without those fucking people around. And they were just, I don't even know that they were bad leaders. We just didn't clash as people, different ideas, uh, different goals. Some dudes were a little bit softer. Some dudes were a little bit, I don't even want to say weaker. They were just different. They didn't want to do what we were now being asked to do. And we were all starting to get really good at, they wanted to do other stuff, um, nicer stuff. What's whatever. So I get to the point where I'm going to come home. And I come home and it's literally, it's like legit how uh, Rambo is like, there were no parades when I came home, right? Um, it was very much like that. We land in the middle of the night, we jump in a truck and we drive straight to the barracks, we go to sleep, wake up and right back to the office. Like no downtime, no conversations with mental health, nothing. Straight back to American soil, back to work, back to doing what you were doing. And now the other guys, oh man, you didn't go to the doc. You didn't go see this dude. You didn't go talk to these people and family affairs and this, 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 and that. I was like, you guys spent the last three months decompressing, basically. I get here and I'm already working. Like we're back to it. And I wasn't mad about it. I was like, just, just what you do. 
Uh, but I remember that being like, well, fuck, I need to figure this shit out. And that's right around the time where I was like, you know what? I'm kind of done with all of this. I go to start the, the ETS pack to leave. And they're like, hey, you want to be a drill sergeant? We'll give you 40 grand. Don't leave the military just yet. Go to this unit. You'll become a drill sergeant. You'll hang out in the reserves and you get to continue the military stuff just on your own like time. Right. I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound bad. I like teaching. I, I don't mind teaching. I, I'd like to get more formalized training on teaching. So why not do it for the military? Right. So I still ended up leaving, jumped onto a reserve contract and then went to become a drill sergeant. And that was a wild time. I think that was my decompression time. It was a reset from, you were still organized while you were deployed. You were still, uh, you still had everything set the way it was supposed to be. You, you were still running everything cleanly. Everything was good, but it was like going back to basic training and starting all over, but with rank, which was cool, right? So it was like a, a brand new reset, restart with a brand new mission. Like, hey, day one, you get your stuff, you get your locker, you set it all up, they toss it. It's like, like starting basic training all over again. It was hilarious. Um, but the mission was, how do we teach you guys to teach the next wave of guys that are going to be the warfighters? And so that was a big privilege. I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. I get to share all the shit that we learned uh, with what you want us to teach them, blend that information with the experience, and then translate that and push that onto the next group of dudes, which was a, was a fun mission. And so I kind of lost myself in that. Like I used the experiences and the exposure to these gnarly events and I kind of like made them into this ball where I could translate that into education via what the goals were for the military into the little experiences and how they related to those goals so that the next wave of soldiers can go and do it a little bit better. Right. So it wasn't all textbook translation of information. It was more a little bit of real life experience with the blended tactics that they were pushing in these in these books and manuals. And then being able to translate that to them. So that's where, and saying it now, I didn't even think of it, saying it out loud now allows me to process that thought. And it's like, fuck, that's really how I decompressed and, and kind of like cooled myself down was going right into that and then finding purpose with what I had. So I didn't have the same team. I didn't have the same guys that I deployed with anymore, but I had a new mission. And I, because I enjoyed teaching, I think that was where I was able to shift focus and find a positive to all of those feelings and emotions. Like how do I translate this for somebody else to benefit from? So you, you do the, the, the drill instructor role for a while. What makes you pull the trigger of ultimately transitioning out and then going into contracting? So <laughs> it, while it was still doing the drill work, I was like, I was really looking at contracting because I wanted to go do more fun shit, right? And I'm like, hey, let's go to another country and see what's going on over there. And so I put in a few, a few packets with a few big companies, had all the, the paperwork, had all the clearances set up, ready to go. I got released to do it from the military. So that was my closing of military service. They're like, oh, you're going to go contract and do something for your, your personal future, right? Uh, basically allowing you to get a job and leave that reserve status so you didn't have to come back and do any reserve time at all. You were just let go completely. So they let me go completely to do contracting. So I, I contracted in cool places. I ended up doing uh, Jamaica, Barbados, some stuff in the US, Australia. And just that was my cycle. It was a cool like post 
uh, all conflict and it was still rowdy. It was still fun and exciting, but it wasn't like militant style. It wasn't dealing with the enemy that I had known now for the last 10 years. It was a brand new like adventure with all the skills from being in the military, right. And being a shitbag on the street sometimes as a kid and all that translated to, to being good at doing the contracting stuff. So for, for us, it was more like advanced work, some primary security stuff. And we're just hanging out with this interesting character from, from Australia. And we would just be his guy. He had an American, he had a, a dude from New Zealand, uh, a dude from South Africa and somewhere else. He just wanted the mix of security crew. He's like, I want one of everything <laughs> kind of guy. Right. And so it, it was definitely different. And that's what led me into contracting was the experience of similar, but different types of work. I wanted to do military style stuff on a different scale. So now I've done it in full uniform, right. With full battalions of soldiers and fighting a war to now doing it in less or smaller unit size, like three to four guys now. Uh, bigger teams were with us in different locations, but it was maybe 10 was max between two, three cars and things like that. Um, but it was just a change of a battlefield. So now we're in like plain clothes or nice clothes and we're moving through these other countries and we're kind of just navigating the streets and getting him from point A to point B. Uh, so it, it was different, but the same type of stuff like mission planning, route planning, all that good stuff, and just dealing with with a new group of people. And again, looking at it now, it's like, man, I was prepping myself for where I am now, interacting with other soldiers, interacting with other ex-military dudes, interacting with other businessmen, uh, and just traveling around, shaking hands and, and going to random places. So that, that was the transition from the army into contracting. And then <laughs> from contracting, I was... Uh, on an active contract in Australia when uh, I get a call that I've been accepted into the Chicago police department's hiring process. I was like, I never put in an application for these guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was dating a female who was on the Chicago police department and she had all my paperwork from when I left the military and uh, marriage number one, she had all the paperwork and, uh, she had filled out the application for me, like the initial portions to, and then I call her and I was like, Hey, what's all this? And she's like, Oh yeah, uh, I fill it all out. You're, you're You're, I guess they called you cause you're good to go onto the next process. So they need you here to take a physical test, blood work, you know, the initial entry stuff. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I never wanted to be a cop. I always kind of ran from the police, but, but let's try it. And she convinced me with the, the statement of, you get to do everything you're doing, carry a gun, and you get to just be home and you know the city. So I was like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. And so that's the beginning of <laughs> law enforcement. Yeah, there's, there's police officers listening now, I'm sure, that, or people that never even got in that, you know, applied 15 times and did all these tests. And then then you're like, yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking about it. My, my wife at the time just put my papers in. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> It's funny because there were a lot of people like, oh, my whole life I wanted to be a cop and I have bad ankles, so I can't run and I can't be a cop or oh, my whole life I wanted to do this, but I never did it because I was scared or something. So I guess I can see how that sounds kind of uh, nonchalant, but that's just the way it worked out for me. Never really wanted to be a cop. It just kind of happened. Now, before we walk through Chicago PD, um in this, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to ask for details and stuff, but you did go to some 
well, one would consider peacetime, you know, countries, Jamaica, Barbados, Australia, etc. Were there any areas, any of those countries where you were surprised behind the kind of facade of the, the tourists perspective that there were some places way more dangerous than most people realize? All of those countries had some gnarly places and we, we had to deal with them just because part of the job was securing this individual who was picking up real estate pieces in all of these countries. And so sometimes favorable, sometimes less than favorable um, dealings, but we still had to go check out these places, right? Before, during, and after we had to have seen these locations. And Jamaica is one of those where it's beautiful on the coastline, but everything inside was super sketchy. Like it almost felt like don't get captured here. This is going to be another like beheading hand chopping type situation. Cause they're a very blade culture. Um, so they, they do a lot more damage with blades there and there's like machete gangs and there's like cultural warfare there that that's going on. And so it, it was tricky and we did get to see a lot of that, that violence and the machete gangs we dealt with once we almost had to plow through all these people in our, in our Q. what did we have that Q sevens, Audi Q sevens, I think. We're just going to run over all these dudes because they were standing in the middle of the road with machetes and we're like, ah, it's probably going to make international news. Let's not do that. So uh, we ended up skirting, went around, dropped the guy off at the airport and, and flew out. But even Australia had a very high criminal element. And where we stayed, we were in Sydney near Chinatown. I remember I could see Chinatown from my hotel and I could walk there and that's where I would go eat because the food was amazing. Uh, and there, I, I, somebody later on told me that, that that's the most legit Chinatown outside of being in China. I was like, oh, well, that's good. I'm glad I got to eat there. <laughs> um, but th the criminal element there, I mean, I, I recognize dope deals from having lived in Chicago for such a long time. And I was like, oh, that's what they're doing there. Or, or these random dealings. And you can tell who was in a group together and cars moving together in uniform. And I was like, okay, so there's this, all this, it's basically criminal elements everywhere, organized crime. And it, the police force there is very different. Like they don't have take home guns. They have to like sign out a gun and leave it there when they leave. So basically if you're not on the job, you're not doing anything for the police force. So there's almost no police anywhere. It's very like police free zones in those countries. Um, why they're not more corrupt. I think it's because the criminal elements have found balance with the local businesses. Personally, that's what I think. <laughs> that's a unique perspective. So thank you. I actually lived in Sydney, uh, Manly. Yeah, Manly Bay is what it was called. So it was, it was, you took a little ferry from Manly over to, to the main Sydney. But yeah, I mean, people don't realize that about London and, you know, many other places. Orlando, where I used to work. I mean, we're far, not, not far at all from the theme parks. You get murdered in a thousand different ways. So yeah, every, every area has their pockets. So you transition out, you, Enter Chicago PD. So kind of walk me through, because I know that you, we were talking before we start recording, your philosophy on this, and I guess now you've described your recruitment story that might describe it, you know, explain it a little bit more. But I never bought into the fact that I'm going to do this job and then I'm going to get a pension and benefits and all that stuff. To me, it was a burning desire to be a firefighter, but I ended up bouncing from the East Coast originally, went out to the West Coast for a few years and then came back to the East. And it was family first. It was the reason I, I moved back and forth. And so the the benefits and the pension were kind of immaterial. Yeah, it's of course nice to have some stability, but it never shackled me to a certain place. So walk me through 
your you know your initial kind of entrance into Chicago, and then what kind of took you to some of the specialty teams that you worked in? Yeah, I think looking at it now as well as this this idea of like pensions and retirement, they weren't a big thing in our family anyway. So I didn't even know that those were potential options until later in life, but they didn't carry the same weight that they do for most people that are like, Hey, you're going to retire at this age and this is your pension and this, this, and then like, that's how people look forward to things. We weren't really raised that way just culturally. So to, it didn't really exist in my mind. And I was like, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just be good at something else. That was kind of like the mentality um, from my father's side. It's like, if you can't do this, get good at something else and do something else and do it better. So you're always, you're always able to do something else or shift focus onto something else. Uh, so I go through the hiring process and that was a fun one, uh, doing uh, polygraphs, right? Lie detectors or whatever. Uh, and having to like, yes and no things that maybe you did do that you didn't want to necessarily admit because it would void you of the ability to be an officer. But you still passed because polygraphs are complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You have to be smarter than the machine. <laughs> just have to not, uh, not, not confess to anything, ultimately. Not be wigged out by the dude telling you he's the world's best polygraph operator and he's caught Al Capone and his mum. And I got the whole yeah. speech. I did this like several times. I'm like, this is the same fucking speech over and over and over again. Because if you're going to be a police officer or a firefighter, you've probably done some naughty shit earlier in your life, let's be honest. Yeah. And they try to spin it in all sorts of different ways. Like the last person that was just in here failed because they lied about this. I was like, what? <laughs> Why are you telling me other people's business? Like I already knew like the whole spiel, right? And it's like you're saying, they try to convince you that the test is, is this immaculate thing that catches everything. Uh, the way I had studied the poly was basically if nothing has been documented on the event, then it doesn't exist. So there's no need to talk about it. Uh, and that, that's how I approached that whole thing. <laughs> and so if it wasn't documented, I didn't have to talk about it uh, or I just breeze past that question. But either way, we get on, I take the physical blood work tests, hair samples, everything, you name it, get hired on pretty quickly. It moved really fast. Uh, I think there was a shortage at the time and they were just trying to get people to start working. I think from the initial test till I was hired, it was like four months where I've heard other people, it takes up to like a year or two to get on. So it was fast. It, it was fast. And I, I was like, all right, well, here we go. Right back to another uniform, more formations, more cadence calling, more doing stuff. Uh, only I didn't want to do the whole, like, I didn't want to be part of the leadership. I just kind of wanted to coast in the back line in the back and just kind of like hang out and be there and just, just be in the back. Right. I was like, ah, I kind of don't want any responsibilities over these people. They're all grownups and it's different in the military when somebody signs up and they want to be there. Like these are all like, yeah, they want to be there, but they don't have to be there. They can quit and go do something else. So it's kind of like tricky. It's trickier. And so I kind of hung back, started the Academy. The Academy's flowing. It's going well. We get a, a weird class commander and I try to amp him up and get him to stay the class commander. I end up becoming the class commander. I didn't want it either. <laughs> and so now I'm leading this, this group of 20 plus people. And it's a lot of fun, right? You're basically the buffer of getting yelled at from the class and the leadership. That's all you really are. You're like, hey, you guys screwed up. And then you got to go back and tell the class that the class screwed up and then how to make it better. That's really what it was. It was a cool, it was a cool buffer. It was fun. You got to hear a little bit more realistic. Uh, it's what made it easier for me, I think, 
Cause they'd be like, Hey, look, you just got to deal with this. And then you guys will be doing your own shit. Just pay attention. And I was like, Oh, cool. That's, that's really what it is. It's not like a, a giant uh, smoke and mirrors kind of deal. So, or it was smoke and mirrors until you started to, to work with the higher ups. And they're just like, Hey, we just need to make sure academically we're hitting this. Everyone's passing tests. Everyone's qualifying for the physical events and then we can move on. So it wasn't like, we're just going to smash you guys forever. So it was cool. It was very, uh, a much more mature approach to leadership than sometimes the military was. So that goes through, we get, we get, I've met a lot of people and I guess I have to say this to, to preface, or preface it with that. I, I knew a lot of people when I joined the department and that's kind of how I moved into these specialty teams. Mm-hmm. It was very old school, like who, you know, who knows you. It wasn't like drop applications like most places. And, and so right when I left the Academy, so graduate the Academy, leave the Academy, start patrol. I think it's 18 months before you can start looking to get onto any teams. So I have 18 months of patrol and everything from walking a beat in the ghetto to being in a van full of other dudes and getting dropped off and then walking circles in neighborhoods to going to the downtown events, going to festivals. And they just basically use you for manpower shortages as, as being the new guys. And so you learn a lot because you get to go to different places. You work with different leaderships and you're kind of, if you're smart, you're setting yourself up by all this movement to start to see where you want to go. Right. You can pick districts depending on your academic level or where you sat in, in firearms or your physical fitness. All these gave you points towards your ability to go to whatever districts you wanted to go to. So you'd get like your main pick and then your secondary pick. And if you didn't get your main one, you usually got your secondary one. And so how I was seeing it is like, well, if I'm going to all these places and I'm meeting the leadership, might as well leave a good impact. Might as well say hello and introduce myself and do all these little political events, right? So that they knew me. So if I ever wanted to come back, I knew somebody there. And I would try to tell that to people like, hey, man, get to know people. Don't just like, and it was the opposite of what I wanted to do at this point. I just wanted to lay back. And I realized the value of who you know and who knows you and how far that could go in an agency like the, the Chicago Police Department. So uh, went that route, figured all those things out. And then time came for, I was like two or three months away, maybe less, maybe a month away from coming off probation. And I was talking to a guy who knew a guy and he's like, I know the dude who was in charge of uh, a narcotics team. And I was like, Hey, well, I did similar stuff, right? I did um, in contracting, we did surveillance and we did reconnaissance of locations and we figured out best routes for things. And we knew how to map things out and the military was similar. And so it'd be cool if you, if they ever need a guy, let them know. And so he made a phone call. I, I then meet with the narcotics guys. It was a cool like flash like interview in a parking lot, right? You go meet one guy, meet the next guy, meet the next guy, meet the next guy. Everybody decides whether they like you or not. And then you get a phone call later on. And so I got the phone call and it was pretty cool. And that's where I started then into the narcotics world. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a question. I've been waiting until we got to the right organic place. Um, in the 14 years that I worked as a firefighter paramedic, you know, I got to see behind the curtain like a lot of first responders do. And you, you're indoctrinated into this drugs are bad. This is your brain on drugs, the war on drugs. Um, and then you take a step back as a responder going, well, it doesn't seem to be getting better. Our prisons are getting, you know, swelling more and more and more. I'm seeing the moment that, you know, one dealer is gone, another one just shows up or they murder each other to see who's going to get that next spot. And, and people listening to this podcast, a lot have heard this story, but I think it's important to, to keep 
getting people's perspectives on it. For me personally, this is this is my you know what I've kind of evolved to the point. My couple of my family members moved to Portugal. And as I started this podcast, my mom said to me, hey, did you know that we decriminalized drugs here? Now, that's decriminalization of addiction, not selling, not smuggling. Those are still shitbags that go to prison. But an addict is caught with a user's amount. They are basically educated on the resources available to them. They're not arrested. Um, and they went from the worst opioid epidemic, I think, in either Europe or the world, following one of the uh, civil wars in Africa that was a Portuguese colony before. All these Portuguese soldiers came back and there was this huge heroin epidemic. So they were deep, deep, deep in the addiction crisis. And just by have proactively removing that prohibition, this is all drugs. So it wasn't like, oh, we'll, we'll just legalize cannabis. It was, and you can't go to the shop and buy this stuff. You know, it's not like it's in Publix or CVS. Um, but when you're caught with that, it's seen as, okay, this is a mental health issue. So therefore this person's going to go through the medical route. Um, you have this lens on narcotics, as you said, in, in the law enforcement, you've had this this worldly perspective of these different countries and you your family originate in a country that i have seen the the prohibition of drugs has caused so much violence especially at the, at the borders now so i'm not loading the question that's kind of my my perspectives i think that the prohibition has been an epic failure and we need to look at putting mental health and addiction into the medical world which i think would cut the head off the snake of the criminal world what is your perspective at this age that you're at now, with all these different roles that you've held, including narcotics, of the impacts of drug prohibition and the so-called war on drugs? It just fuels it. The, the prohibition just creates more jobs, and it is a job market. Uh, and so I'm all for the, the idea of legalizing it as an experiment and collecting the information necessary to make better decisions, because we can't make a decision on something we haven't tried right? So if, if we would give it a chance to see, and there's culture, there's countries that have done it and it, it, it shows that it works. Um, there's too much business rooted in narcotics. I think it's such a cultural thing for the United States, especially its relationship to Mexico and even further South uh, that I think you, you would probably get a vote from the people to, to lift the prohibition, but you won't get it from the industry side of the countries. The industry is so far rooted that, I mean, routes are set specifically for it. There's a ton of things that are working that the general public doesn't know uh, that, that it's almost, it, it almost can't be done because there's so much stuff attached to that business. Um, but on, on the public side, the people, I bet the people would be like, yeah, let's give it a whirl. Um, but the businesses couldn't do that. I think it'd be a great test to see, and I think it would it would address a ton of mental health issues. It would address a, a ton of things that could be solved by uh, conversations of mental health, especially in low income areas where they're just not educated. So the education leads to mental health issues because they don't know how to process information or deal with emotions better than some other places that have a little bit more time behind that, which then just deepens the mental health crisis which spins out of control with more lucid drugs and, and things that, that people don't really, they don't know that they don't need them, but that's the only option that they have. Right. Uh, and I know a lot of dudes who spin off of pain pills and go down the uh, heroin route just for 
because there's nobody to talk to. And I, I, in conversations, they do better when they have a support structure of people that know what's going on than when they try to hide it. And I think that, again, you hide everything because it's prohibited, right? You try, you, you create this underground network of it, and then it just gets worse and worse and more entangled. So I think it'd be an, a phenomenal experiment to collect the data if we did make it all legal. I think it would solve a lot of problems. Um, but I don't think the, <laughs> the financial institutions are ready for something like that. Yeah, well, I think that's that's you know what I see as well. And let's take cigarettes for example. Again, I'm not saying ban cigarettes, but what's the resistance to you know really reducing the use, especially let's say when we were young, you know, well the resistance was the cigarette people want to keep making cigarettes, even though it's killing you know hundreds of thousands of people. And this is what I see, and it breaks my heart. You know, you've got a beautiful country like Mexico, and before that, in the, in the kind of drug cycle, it was Colombia with the cocaine you know um, epidemic that was going on. And that prohibition has led to the destruction of many, many areas of those places. And then we have the audacity to go, oh, these Mexicans trying to come into our country, let's build a wall. Well, where's the conversation of what the fuck did we do to make these people want to flee Tijuana and all these other areas? Because as we talked about before, that fear of beheading, the violence of some of these cartels down there, and I talked to Ed about this too, you know, it's it's absolutely horrendous. So, and then you look at the police element, and I want to get to kind of Chicago again in a second, but... We always, you know, they're fine televising that one police brutality element. And of course, that that should be brought, you know, out of the, the shadows as well. But where is the discussion on why the hell are our streets so dangerous when many countries around the world don't have this kind of violence? Like you said, you don't see, you know, shootouts on the streets of Sydney normally. And you don't have that cop presence. What are they doing differently? And drug, you know, it's not that they... they they um, don't have drug prohibition there, but there are things that we do in the United States that have absolutely contributed to the violence in this country, the theft, the, you know, the multi-generational domestic abuse. I mean, all these things are tied into ultimately mental health. And if we just talk about, you know, defund the police or, you know, whatever the, the, the surface level box checking conversations are, we're never going to get to the root of the problem. And that root would solve so many of the things that, you know, spiritually and financially are crippling this country. Definitely. Uh, a lot of it is education here, I believe. Uh, we've seen it in Chicago a lot. Uh, there's not a lot of options for people uh, to choose from as far as careers or job professions, things like that. So, But there is a lot of this hype around good guys and bad guys, Right. And being in a gang or being the, the main dude in a gang or being the, the, the runner, like doing something fucking cool, as they would say, or they would see it uh, for these gang elements. And so at a certain age, education becomes this thing where you're just kind of like, nah, this is boring. I'm going to go do this. And so the blending culturally of this good guy, bad guy stuff that we have, this criminal element and then the, the police element, and then you just start to throw in the, the things that drive either way, right? Uh, what's going to create more criminals? Well, creating more prohibition on more items and more things. Well, now you're going to have more cops dealing with more criminals because so many more things are potentially set to make criminals, right? Uh, and so that's just, for me, I think education is a big leader into why we have so much nonsense, right? Um, and it, it, it also leads into the idea of why prohibition is a thing. Well, we're not educated enough to understand the data of what it would be if we knew the outcome, 
right? If we knew what legalizing certain uh, or legalizing the whole thing and then seeing what happens, uh, I don't think anybody's educated enough to know or to even have an idea. There, there's there's concepts and we're seeing it. There is data out there, and I think nobody's bold enough to take that that route. But to me, education, from what I've seen, the education levels are low, criminal is high, and most of them aren't as educated as we we think. We think people, for the most part, we, we address people and we, we talk to people at, at the level that we're at. So we expect everybody to be there, but that's not the case, man. Having debriefed plenty of criminals that we've put in jail, uh, education levels are low. Uh, their understanding of the world as a whole is very small. They, they know maybe the city that they live in, even smaller the neighborhoods that they deal with, uh, and even smaller the two-block radius that they walk around in. So they're not educated in big picture politics, big picture business. Uh, some don't even know on a map where other countries are. And these are grown men. So it's a tricky thing, man. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's, it's a courageous conversation that needs to be had. We have to put our hands up and say, look, this didn't work. This, this was the 1930s that this was put in place. We've got almost 100 years longitudinal study. This has only amplified the number of prisoners we have, the violence on our streets, the domestic abuse. I mean, ev everything we deal with, this has amplified it. It doesn't mean it's the only reason, but it's amplified it. It's time to try something different. Switzerland's done it. Portugal's done it. I forget. One of the Central or South American countries did it as well. I forget which one. We have people that have done that study for us. Is it going to be apples to apples exactly? No. Every country is different. But we have to start doing you know, something else. And Ed, when we talked, he, I think he was of the understanding, well, we just legalized marijuana. Well, now they're you know, growing. I think it was opium down in Mexico now. That's the problem. You have to do it, all of them. So any illicit yeah. drug you take that away criminality as far as addiction so that you don't just put another drug in those fields, but now you go back to maybe coffee or hemp or whatever the the product that that farmer can also make money from that will actually make the world better than rather than worse. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that's what it'll be. It'll be one gets substituted for the other. And what sucks is it's only getting stronger, right? Uh, if it went from, from cannabis to, to opioids, that's a huge leap. Um, they both have that sit down and chill out effect, but one is just massively more addictive and the criminal elements around it are, are, are a lot different as well. Cause now you can grow cannabis in the States. Right. Um, but the poppy to make the heroin comes from interesting places. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's another thing that's interesting talking to, to members of the military and I can see how this conversation is evolving because when I first asked about this in the first kind of two or three years of the podcast, I got a very, you know, tight lipped response. But then people started, you know, opening up about this and it's even the opium fields in Afghanistan. And people were saying, yeah, the war on terror is basically funded by the illicit drug trade. So again, there's another arm to this. And then you factor in, okay, these men and women come home and they have these, some of these, um, you know, psychological issues that they're dealing with. And what's some of the most effective treatments? Psychedelics. And they have to go out the country they fought for to go and get the treatment for the, you know, the, the things they saw and did for this nation. So no matter how you look at it, the, the common sense answer seems to be, as you said, of course, we're not saying we're just doing this flat out, but let's try this. Let's, let's figure out a way that we can kind of mirror some of these other countries and do it for the benefit of the nation rather than filling the pockets of some of these lobbyists. Yeah. 
in Portland, right? They had the whole Chaz fucking area that they allowed to be police free and ungoverned by anything. Like that's a great example of why don't you do that to a city that's willing to participate in the experiment? You allow these fucking people to burn shit down and riot and have no police supervision or any sort of criminal um, charges brought on them, but you won't try something like decriminalizing. I think that would be a cool, again, it'd be a great social experiment to see what we can produce here in America. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, you know, rogue methods. So just walk me through what made you transition out of Chicago and then your Arizona experience. Yeah. Uh, Chicago was a blast, by the way. Like I had the greatest time as a cop there. Talk about (laughs) any movie where you can imagine being on top of the world as a cop that's what it was like being in narcotics. And I don't think the SWAT dudes get to feel that same sense, right? Because they're very like green suits, super muscular, super fucking helmets and all this shit that they wear, right? And they're patrolling. That's, that's an intro. I, I was never a fan of that lifestyle. I didn't want to do SWAT because I had already wore all this stuff in the military. So to me, I was like, man, I'm kind of over all the carrying rifles and all this shit as a cop. Um, but the narcotics route, man, like to fully bearded fucking tank top, gym shorts, pistol in the pants, like just living in a city and you would tell whoever would stop you, other cops from other cities. And you're like, Hey, I'm with this unit. And it was just like, Oh, hands off. Let him do what he was doing. Uh, there was this fucking sense of power, man. And I think that's what attracts people to the 20 year thing as well. Is like this, like, um, it's like a persona uh, and almost like this, this thing that they become, right. They become the badge. Uh, that was never me. I was always back and forth. And then I wouldn't wear my badge if I wasn't at work. Like I didn't, I didn't carry IDs if I didn't have to, like I separated myself well from the police department. It wasn't an identity crisis for me to leave the military. It wasn't an identity crisis for me to leave law enforcement, Um, And again, it was just because I wasn't tied or married to the idea. Like, oh, this defines me. This is who I am. I was like, well, fuck, I'm this guy. They're lucky to have me as a fucking officer. This is what I'm doing. And I think that that's, again, that's the same mentality I have with everything that I do. It's like, well, I'm going to do this better because this is what we're doing now. Right. It never, I never had to be like felt stuck. So it was an easy transition for me to leave Chicago and come to, so at this time I was, off narcotics and I was teaching, not off like using, because that, that might have sounded like that, right? <laughs> uh, I was off being high at the time. I was just kidding. I was off narcotics unit and I was teaching at the Chicago Police Academy. So now there's this theme of teaching before I leave an organization, right? So now I left the military. I taught. I left um, the law or left Chicago. I was teaching at the at the police academy and. I was already experimenting with drills and programs that I do for rogue methods now back then, right? I was already doing things there, setting the tone for the future. I knew I wanted to teach the private sector world uh, and I wanted to build a community with it in the sense of promoting law enforcement and civilians training together. Not like we're only going to train cops or we're only going to train civilians. I'm like, I'm going to train fucking everybody and anybody who wants to come that's a legal gun owner and wants to fucking get better and build a fucking network. Let's do this. Right. That was the goal. uh, Or that's the goal to this day. So as I'm leaving the Chicago Police Department, I needed somewhere better to go. And I was on a trip 
to Sedona, Arizona, a few, maybe an hour from where I live now and set the wife number two. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, we're there. We, we were in the back roads hanging out and I see a deputy sheriff truck drive by. And as it drives by, I'm like, they pay these fucking people to wear the same uniform, but drive around these mountain roads, right? Cowboy hats and doing cool shit. Like I want to do that instead. And that's really the story of how I ended up in Arizona. I saw that truck and I was like, I want to be a cowboy cop too. Let's do it. <laughs> and so I called the department that's here and I was like, hey, what do you guys need for me for me to come into this, this agency? And they're like, well, where are you from? I told them where I was from. It's one of the most recognized academies in all of the country. So they're like, just come in, take the test. You'll be ready to go. And once you're certified via the test, we'll put you into FTO status. You'll learn the, the roads, the back ways, the way we do things, and then you'll be on your own. And so no more than like four or five months later, I, I was all, I, I came to Arizona, became a deputy, uh, took the test and passed first time go with like a couple hours of studying the test. I mean, the law is the law everywhere, right? For the most part, it all translates other than speed limit zones change, uh, state to state. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, the transition was pretty simple. It went from high metropolis with just people on top of people to me being in a vehicle by myself after uh, the FTO phases to driving backcountry roads, exactly as I imagined, driving an hour from one location to another just to say hello and write a small report for somebody, doing a lot more traffic and then just hanging out in the mountain roads of, of Arizona as a deputy. So it was cool to go from a, an agency, which is just, it's almost run like a big business organization versus uh, a sheriff's office, which is a political uh, endeavor, right? He has to be elected and then he puts into place the officers or the deputies. So you're working for an elected official, which had a little bit more of a, of a prideful sense. You, the uniform you done was for those people. They were the people that put into place the guy who you now work for. So it was, it was a cool feeling. Uh, definitely a different take on policing, a lot more community-based is what I was trying to go for. This is really focusing on the public, really focusing on getting to know people and bringing people together. And uh, we have, that area had a more of a meth problem. Chicago had more of a heroin problem. So two different effects type drugs, right? But uh, no, it was, it was a, a fun transition. And I definitely enjoyed uh, my time as a copper in, in both those entities. Now, were you exposed to any of the kind of border crisis elements when you were assigned there? We didn't have a lot of border issues. I mean, we had some fentanyl as I was leaving the, the department uh, coming up from the border. But we're so where I was, it's about three, maybe four hours from the border. So it's not directly linked to it. Even now I'm like two and a half, three hours from the border. So not, not terribly close, uh, especially not the violence. The violence didn't reach that far. At that point, all the command lines and all the potential seizure lines were pretty much cleared. And now they're on highways on their way to, to delivery. So unless somebody was snitching, it was hard to find stuff. You could pick them out sometimes here and there, but there's just so much volume on highways that it was hard to see. So after 14 years, I came at a crossroads that ultimately took me into focusing purely on this, that kind of force multiplier element. 
and the autonomy that I realized I had when I wasn't in uniform. As you said, you know, when you're patrolling around in narcotics or when I was a firefighter paramedic, especially on, on the, what we call the rescue, the fire ambulance. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You're going down these, these roads and these less than desirable areas and, you know, the, the sex workers and the gangbangers are all waving to you because you're the last person they're probably going to see if anything bad happens. So it's, I totally understand that feeling and you feel like, you're extremely autonomous, but then you take a step back and go, well, I'm told when to show up, you know, which vehicle to go on, how to shave, what to wear, you know, and then you realize, okay, I'm actually not as free as I, as I thought I was. So when I transitioned out, it was incredibly liberating. And now obviously, you know, I, I work for myself. I, I, I set my own schedule as well. So with all these years in uniform, you know, what was, what made you decide to, to start your own business and, and then talk to me about the training that you offer? Yeah, I, the ideas are the same. It's, it's how do we give back to the community? How do we share? How do we continue to give off the, the lessons learned, right? Um, and that's what I've been trying to do ever since I left the military. I, th I think even since I, the day I came back, I was like, how do I transfer all this stuff that helped me out? Um, be it the lessons in how to deal with people to how to fight, how to shoot, how to eat better, all of these things. Like, how can I share this with somebody? And, and I say it in every podcast, like my biggest fear is that I didn't get a chance to share everything that I learned before I died. So I'm trying to get it out there. I'm trying to share it. Right. Uh, just like the, the early writers of the Bible, we have, we have ideas as to who they were, but even they didn't want to be known for having helped put the book together. There's a lot of like unknown authors, right? Like that's a thing to me. Like, well, if the greatest book that has survived all this time, the authors didn't want recognition for it. They just wanted the message to be out. Uh, that resonated heavily with me. So to me, it was just pass it on, teach it, go there. And I'm not comparing myself to these authors by any means. It's the idea of it, like sharing without caring of some sort of like, hey, look, it's me that wrote this message or me who did this. Like, I don't care about those things. And so the best way to then do it, and I wanted to continue to teach. And again, every five to seven to eight years, there's this transitional point for me, unafraid to go on to the next. And so I left law enforcement to start teaching in the private sector. And I was teaching for another major company for a long time. I, I, I created their program. I hired all their instructors. I took them from 10,000 a month to 150,000 a month, all with a GED. Like that's my highest level of education. But I understood business because I understood people. I understood the market that I was after. And I, I also did a little bit of illegal stuff when I was younger, but I, I learned how to translate that into business models for the future. Right. And so I was able to do this really well for three years for another major company who's one of the strongest training companies in the industry. Um, and then we met and had a, a conversation about where we were going uh, into the future. And that's kind of where we parted ways. And I'd launched Road Methods. The message never changed for me, right? I still want to teach people, I still want to pass on information. How can I do it better? And so all the lessons from law enforcement, the lessons from the military, the lessons from contracting, should I talk about my dieting, my fitness routines, everything and anything, if somebody's willing to listen, that's what that platform has become. Uh, a group of dudes, so I have a small team, uh, I have a, a couple of instructors who work with me and they're all the same mission. The goal is to pass on the shit that we're good at and we know that one guy's better at this thing and another guy's better at this and I'm better at this. We take those highlights and then we work together to pass that information forward. So it's not like I'm trying to do what they do and they're trying to do what I do. Like there is a specialty and I think it's important that we, we kind of look into that. If people specialize in a specific thing, let them be specialist in it. 
we as, as, as people, I think should be good at all the things, the whole jack of all trades, right? I think that's important because you will learn no matter what it is, right? Even if it's specialty, you don't want to focus on the specialty of something. You're able to pick things up that make sense because everything is pretty fun. Anything sound is rooted in fundamentals, right? Or principles that uh, are, are ever guiding. So they're always there. No matter if I read one book here, or I read another book here on leadership and another book on coaching, they're very similar because they're rooted with the same principles, right? And a lot of it has to do with how, how you deal with people and how people learn and interact. And there's only so many ways we could do things because we only have two hands. It's not like we can hold certain things any new different ways, right? So it's just about maximizing those things. And that's really been uh, the transition then is how do we teach the civilians who didn't want to go to the military or couldn't go the civilians who didn't want, and I'm a civilian now, so I hope nobody takes me using the term civilian as anything other than just an ease of a term. Um, but for the Americans who didn't participate in the armed forces or in law enforcement, how can we get them very close to or similar to uh, training from people who've done both? And I think that's what's really unique about Rogue Methods is I've done both the military, I've done three, military contracting and law enforcement. I've been a good guy, I've been a bad guy. And all of those things transfer into the lessons that I tried to portray as far as our combatants programs, our, our shooting specific programs, or, or our home defense programs, all of that it just funnels into that. I'm going to give, I'm trying to give people that experience and I get it. Not everybody could have gone to the military. Not everybody could have gone to law enforcement, but you can definitely get the same training as them uh, via our programs. And that was my goal is to train up as many Americans as possible so that I know that in America, there are well-trained people that I can rely on that can call me a friend and I can call them a friend, right? Why have enemies when you can have friends is a very strong uh, saying that I follow. And so if, if I, the more people I can train, the more allies I have that have the same skill set or similar. And now we're just stronger and stronger. And then I push those people that take our programs to use the material and teach other people. And now we're creating our own little quote unquote guerrilla forces within the country of people capable of defending themselves and defending the people that they love and teaching other people. Like you don't have to be a 10 year veteran of this or a 10 year veteran of that. As long as you understand some principles, teach that shit to your kids so that they can be better. You know, like that, that's the whole idea with rogue. Well, I was wanting to be a cop, but I have weak ankles. So, uh, <laughs> no, but I, so I came from the UK and ironically, I grew up with guns. We had guns on my farm. I grew up on a farm. Um, but then when I moved here, you know, I was complete white belt, blank canvas when it came to that. Um, and so, I ironically, my first training really with weapons was Tim Kennedy's Sheepdog Response Group. They came over here yeah. and we did the two days with them. And having a little bit of jujitsu experience at that point, it really opened my eyes like, oh shit, you know, you've got jujitsu pool guard. Now you throw in an eye for a gun. Well, that's a whole different thing. And then you've got stand in a range with a gun and you throw in jujitsu and like, well, that's a whole different thing. So. Talk to me about what you see um, some of the challenges in law enforcement specifically. I mean, obviously, this, this applies to the civilian with a gun. It applies to, you know, the, the close protection agent. But let's focus on, on law enforcement for a moment. What are some of the challenges that you see in some of the training that our officers are receiving? And what is the gap that you're bridging with rogue methods? So having been in those agencies, right, and seeing the training firsthand, 
the, a lot of the training just, it doesn't meet the needs of what they're experiencing on the street, right? Like little things that, that we do in training that officers are like, man, I wish this would have been a thing 10 years ago when I joined or, uh, I wish we would have been taught this just to move our hips a certain way versus all the shit that we're taught. And I think what's missing, what's honestly missing is again, it's the, the liberated idea of can we make change without upsetting the past? Right. A lot of this is lineage or uh, it's a lineage idea. Like, hey, well, we learned it this way and it's worked for the last 20 years. We're going to continue to do it because there's nothing wrong with it. And on top of that, all of our policies are in line with what we're teaching. More than anything, that's really what it is. <laughs> um, so you need instructors that are willing to create new programs that actually meet the violence. And again, this is what I was already practicing with, with my training at the Chicago Police Department before I even launched Rogue Methods was, you know, how can we bridge this gap of the best outcome of any situation is talk your way through things, through awareness, understand that I can use my hands to slow you down. And then if I have to introduce a tool, I have the ability to introduce a tool or slow you down if you're the one that has the tool and then I can gain control of this. And officers are taught things in like these little tidbits. They're like firearms over here, combatives over here, cuffing over here, um, arrest and control stuff over here. Uh, fight sequencing over here, but they're never tied together. And I think more than anything, it's a, it's an injury prevention thing. They don't want people to get hurt in training and that would look really badly. And even from the outside looking in, if you don't explain to the onlooker what they're seeing, it can look like bad training. Right. And I do this masterfully with the marketing that I post online. I make it look extremely like, what the fuck is going on right now? This is the most weird. They're like witnessing a, a three to five second clip of a 16 hour training event, right? A three second clip of 16 hours. And it's designed to mess with you. Like, why would they do that? And what's going on here? Um, but that's the, that's the thing that that's happening in training for law enforcement outside looking in the, the, the brass doesn't know what's going on. So big advice to fix training. And I said this before, I said it at a conference not too long ago, a law enforcement conference was if the training staff would be bold enough to align themselves with the brass after they create a good program, present it to brass, right? The, the higher ups invite the higher ups to come and see the program. And while the program is happening, explain to them what they're seeing, why they're seeing it, how it relates to this, how it'll reduce injury rates, how it'll reduce crime rates, how it would enforce the strength of the other officers, because now they're capable of all these things, how it'll reduce what's perceived as excessive force with a more quick onset of strong force once versus 10 little punches, just one good slap or one good elbow that looks a lot better on video. And so what would be cool to see, and they're going to try it, I think this conference, some of the guys were like, let's try it, see what happens. So hopefully they try it and they let me know. Um, but they're going to, they're going to create a good, strong program, blend all the things together, right? Later in the stages of hiring. So now that you know how to shoot, now that you know how to do a little grappling, a little bit of arresting control, and a little bit of these fight sequences, create the scenarios basically that I'm creating with rogue methods for people to have these exposures and experiences, bring the brass and allow them to see what's happening and then explain to them, what is this, why this is happening, how this can benefit this, and then let them digest it knowing what they're looking at. 
And then you get them to be on your side as far as the training staff goes. Now they're going to open up the, the floodgates to let you do even more training like that. And then that with the alignment of brass will open up policy. Policy would be easier to write into your training and then you will have better trained officers. But the training staff has to be willing to go that extra step and include brass, have a conversation with them. And it is a little bit of extra work, but again, it's education really. Well, with the grappling element, something I've just seen in myself is I did, you know, I had a, a period where I was grappling consistently. I mean, as consistently as you can being a firefighter on shift, but, and then went away again. And when I first went back in just over a year ago now, I mean, every role I did, I was getting hurt. I'm like, Jesus Christ. But then I realized, I remember even from before, the more you roll, the less you get hurt. As long as you've got a good training partner, like your body needs to get used to being put in these unusual situations. So with that lens, I mean, how, how do you sell that holistic package? Because if the, you get a bunch of officers, some who may be deconditioned and you put them in a scenario where you're fighting for a gun or a knife or weapon retention, there may well be a lot of strained muscles or crick necks. But, um, you know, if you make that a consistent training that they do often, I would assume then your injury rate is actually going to decline as they get more used to that kind of combat. Yeah, for sure. You can go that route. You can go the route of conditioning and allowing them to have it. Or you can go the, the team building route where you explain the confines of the rule like, hey, no fast twitch movements, no crazy freaking out moments, even if your heart rate's through the roof. A lot of that falls on the training staff. Uh, and again, education, some of these guys don't know they were put in place there or they don't care to learn anymore. They're just teaching what's in the book, but they don't realize like the human element, right? The, the stress, the stress when somebody's freaked out and their heart rates through the roof and they're just trying to end a scenario, they're going to do something spastic that could get somebody hurt. Right. Uh, I think that would be the way to do, to do something like that. Either you go one route where it's consistent and some departments are doing that. They have like weekly meets and they train and they do their, their grappling and their conditioning, or you have really good uh, mediators where they're able to be like, Hey, these are the rules. This is what we're after. This is the goal. Go. Right. I think that's two ways to combat potential injury having conversations with people like, Hey, nobody wants to get hurt. Nobody wants to hurt you. You don't want to hurt me. We're here to do this together. There's no showing off. There's no winning. Let's just work. You take those little elements out, the ego part of it. And then guys are more willing to have fun. And if they're about to lose, they're okay with losing instead of like acting very sporadically one last ditch effort. And then they end up hurting somebody else because of it. Um, but again, that comes with shit tons of hours that I've had on the range with people and on the mats and seeing it and just that one moment where we have a brief conversation, no more than two minutes, has saved a ton of people from being injured. Yeah, that's great to hear because I think the pendulum has swung so far away because of, I think, quote unquote, health and safety. I don't even think it's legitimately health and safety, to be honest, if you look at the, the long term. But, you know, the, 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 a lot of the training in the fire service became very, you know, box checking. They'll do this skill once. Well, they just fucked it up. What do you mean once? They've got to do it again and again and again until they get it right. Um, and and you, you deviate from that realism. Well, now your worst day is going to be a real fire versus you put people through the crucible safely and you hydrate between evolutions and, you know, you, you walk, you know, crawl, walk and then run. Now, hopefully their worst day will be on the drill ground, not in a real fire. So, so this realism of training that I see, you know, with, with rogue methods, with sheepdog response, with some of these other groups that are out there seems to be putting that back where it, where it should be. Because I'm not a police officer, but the idea of standing and putting six rounds into a paper target in a range 
is it's hard to really envision how much of that at all would actually carry over when you have the adrenal dump and you've got someone running at you and you know you haven't got those i mean a lot of ranges you can't even draw from in a, in a public range so you know you're literally just holding a gun you know a weapon at the target already and just squeezing the trigger yeah for sure uh there are innovative there there's people changing the game and i think they see the need for it um but they need it to be in the right space and time so like ashley right she's now in the right space and time to really push her training which again there's a few companies out there doing it really well um i know ashley just launched her brand and that's an awesome one otx i believe they are off the x training and they're very modeled for law enforcement which i think is very important like i, I hope that they continue to do what they're doing um, where Rogue Methods is more modeled after the general public, right? So I'm going to always, 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 always have an open door for the public because I think they're going to need it first. Law enforcement needs it as well. Um, but the public, man, there's, here's what I tell people. I was like, you're either going to live with what you did to defend yourself or you're going to live with the mentality of being a victim and what you wish you would have done. And that shit is more haunting. The more people that I've briefed, they're more haunted by what they wish they would have done and the victim mentality than anybody who's ever had to do something in defense of their life where they're like, well, fuck, that was that. I had to do that. And then they're like, there were no other options, you know? And so they'll never have, they'll have the guilt of what they had to do, which is something you can get past versus the guilt of what you know you could have done, but chose not to do. And now you have to live with this victim mentality, which eats at you if you are a very prideful person. And you should be, you should have some pride, right? And the things you do look good, be sharp, be in shape, eat well. Um, but it, it eats at those people. And I know some people have then went on to take their own lives from having become victims of certain situations. So uh, again, that's the big reason why I push for the open market and the civilian market and What's fun about that is we get a trickle effect. We'll have law enforcement jump in because they want to see how the civilians are training. Then they're like, holy shit, these civilians are training way more hardcore than we are. And so you'll have more law enforcement guys show up while the public is showing up. And then it's just this beautiful mix of the fight world with the shooting world, with the tactical world. Um, and everybody's just coming together to, to figure some stuff out. And I think that's the breeding ground that we're providing, that, that ability for people to come and test all of that. So describe the courses that you offer. And also, I'd love to hear you talk about the course you're doing with Ed as well. Yeah. So my primary course with Rogue Methods is our close contact gunfighter. It's a two-day program. I have a one-day model as well. And the goals, though, they don't look like it on our marketing and social media. They look like we're fighting over guns constantly. Uh, the goals of the program are to prepare you to be able to defend your equipment from it being taken from you. And if it's taken, how to get it back. Like those are the objectives. It's not who gets shot first or shoot the other guy. Like people miss out on the actual training because they watch these videos and they think the goal is to shoot the other person or uh, the guys are like bash them in the head with the gun. I'm like, yeah, then you were not a training partners, man. You can't really do that to your training partners. Right. Um, people miss the point because, and it's all by design. That's a big marketing thing. Like, Hey, check this cool shit out. And, what I want is for that to intrigue them and then take the training. And then the training, you'll find all the valuable little nuggets that you're actually looking for. But the programs are designed to help you retain your equipment. Don't get your stuff taken, how to recover it if it is taken and how to stop everything in between before what we're seeing in these fights, fighting over guns. Like that's worst case scenario. So how do we do everything up until this moment? 
cool. Now we're here. Now let's address this. And everything is taught in a very systematic way that leads it to the next. So we'll learn how to defend here and then we'll pick up where that left off and we'll learn how to take back from there if we do lose it. And then slowly, slowly until we get to the worst case scenario. And then how do we solve this worst case scenario until we're all the way back to where everything is safe, sound, and back to our, our control. Uh, with a little bit of medical, I include medical training in all of our classes. Uh, I think it's important that if we're going to be out there carrying things, we should also be able to offer some assistance to, to others medically um, to the scope of our ability, right? You don't have to go crazy and start traking people that you don't, you don't know how to do a trach, but um, definitely help with a little bit of pressure and little things like that, that everybody should know. We have a very firearm specific side of the house as well. We have low profile pistol and low profile carving, all from concealment, all low profile. How quickly can I get something and start doing what I need to do as far as defending myself with these, these tools and I have some of the best competition shooters in the world uh, training for us and with us to, to build these programs, to get people the best training possible from the competitive side, which translates incredibly great to the tactical realm or the combative realm. Uh, people just, there has been a disconnect with competitive shooting and combative shooting. And I think we're trying to bridge that gap with our brand. And that's what the big goal for firearms there is. And then lastly, our, our structured defense program is our CQB, how to move as an individual or a two-man team, depending on how many people we have in class. Uh, and it's really modeled as to understanding where the hard, it's really hard to do CQB by yourself as one individual. You have to give up something somewhere, right? Uh, CQB is almost impossible. It might be impossible to do by yourself because you can't see everything in a room at once, right? Depending on the layout of the room. So you have to be able to, Figure out where your risks are and decide where am I willing to take a chance? So that comes through education, right? Statistics is, is this corner going to be better than that? How can I answer better? How can I see the most that I need to see so that I can safely walk into this room? And so we address all of that. We teach people how all the footwork that, that, that comes in when it, when it comes to uh, moving through structures, footwork is very, very paramount. It's very paramount to everything. Fighting is all footwork. Right. Um, so footwork, their ability to see and read a room and then make a decision as to where the most risky parts would be and then how to address that is really the focus of CQB. And then it has a force on force element where you get to test it with um, marking cartridges back and forth with an opponent. So it's, it's pretty neat. And then uh, the upcoming course with Ed, which is actually pretty cool because we're doing we're trying to do two to three collaborations a year. Right. And so we've already done one. He and I in Phoenix, he hosted me. I'm going to host him up in San Diego and then I'm host. So he, I'm hosting him or he's hosting. Then he's going to host me in February and I'll host him again in Mar or May of next year. Uh, again, all locations to be determined. We're still figuring out this whole things, but the class we're doing is the organic medium of training against flesh via whatever your tools are, whether it's a blade or a gun and how those tools impact. So the medium will be the flesh. Uh, it'll be a few pig carcasses and then we'll, we'll be dealing with blades, hand impacts, all sorts of tools that people bring and basically just allowing people the chance to touch something that was alive and get an experience unlike any other. And then that same evening, we'll gather around a campfire. Ed and I will cook a meal for everybody and have conversations, open platform to ask and, and get to know us and then continue the day the next day. Again, his experiences, my experiences, 
mediums um, and entries and exits of the tools that we decide to carry. Beautiful. I mean, there's, there's so much there. I, I would love to take one of your classes if you guys get to, to Florida, either you know, yourself or both of you. Um, one thing that there seems to be a conflicting information all, you know, wherever I turn, this is a question I genuinely want to know because I want to purchase the weapon for this house. So I have a Glock 19, which kind of goes back and forth from my car. So it's always within, re- I wouldn't walk around with it the whole time, but it's close to me usually. But I wanted to get um, some sort of, you know, long gun, carbine, shotgun, whatever that would fall under for the home defense element. Now, when I've, you know, researched it, I've, I've seen some people that will don't get, you know, this type of carbine because you'll end up shooting the bad guy and then all three of your children at the same time. Um, I really liked shooting the, uh, the SIG 9mm. I don't know if you call it a carbine, but the long gun. Um, so talk to me about what you would recommend. The, the average, average American house. Um, what kind of weaponry and ammunition for that? Because I'm not looking to take out a member of the Taliban, you know, down the street. I'm just looking to protect my house. Yeah, uh, this, this one's tricky. A lot of it has to do with like the home setup, where you are in the house, um, where can you hold, what are your backstops, right? We had this conversation not too long ago in our last structured defense class. If if you're going to have a two two three right or a five five six carbine. It, look, you have to you have to know where things are going beyond it, right? So let's say my house, uh, the family's usually on the second floor, and that's where I would have the carving, right? So now if you're coming and I'm holding it from the top looking down, my backstop is the earth on a downward angle. So it's not like it's going to rip into the buildings next to me, right? So that's where an ideal position from the top of the house, you're holding it, pointing it downward towards the ground into whatever might be coming up the stairs. I think that's ideal for a higher caliber or more fast moving rounds. Now, if you're on a first floor and that's all you have, I think pistol caliber carbines, like you mentioned, the nine mil carbines, those are a great option because they're shooting nine mil, right? It's not traveling at the craziest velocities uh, and they are doing what they're supposed to be doing in the direction that you want to be doing. A lot of Uh, alleviating your problems with not wanting to pierce through walls is just understanding where you are in the room and where your rounds are going to go beyond it. And that's just knowing the layout of your house, right? Are there positions in the house where I know that I can't take a shot because it's going to go directly into the window of my neighbor? I probably shouldn't stand in that direction. I should modify my position. Uh, So a lot of it comes to how you position yourself. But I think if you're going to buy something for the house, handguns are fantastic. And a pistol caliber carving in nine mil would be even better, I think, because you can carry more rounds. It holds better. It's easier to mount. It shoots more stable. And some hollow points that just kind of eat up when they start making contact with things would be a good idea. Because when you think of an American home defense weapon, usually it's the shotgun. Um, Now, growing up with shotguns on the farm, I know that, you know, a 12 gauge can do a lot of damage. So what is your perception of that weapon of choice? I like shotguns. I think that they're great. Uh, they're pretty accurate to like 50 yards. So if you got a slug, you can do good stuff with a slug. It's just, it's how much do you want spreading where, right? It's taking 10 shots of that car or nine shots of that carving and just hoping that they go one spot or blasting them all nine. And then they're just kind of scattering and going in different places. Right. So I'm not against them. I think anything with more that packs just a little bit more power, more powder, more pressure, 
um, on a downward angle. So your shotguns for your second floor guarding the, the, the hallways down or the stairways downward where your backstop is the earth. I think that's fine. If you're on a farm or you're living on an acre of land, I think a rifle is just, it, it doesn't, it's not going to matter as much, right? You have that carbine and you know exactly where to go and then understand your house and know where the positions of your placement would be so that the angles are where they should be. I think that's where people miss out. They want to be able to do everything from one spot. Right. Um, but this is not the case. Like you have to be again, educated onto where the best locations are, where would be the best place to defend and creating backstops for yourself. Right. So fighting from the high ground down gives you the earth as backstops. So you don't have to worry so much about rounds traveling into the fray. Beautiful. Well, Rao, I want to say thank you so much. I'm sure people listening are fascinated. I know I truly would love to attend one of your your uh, courses that you put on. So where can people find you on social media? And then where are the best websites to go for the training? Yeah, uh, my social media is uh, for Instagram. It's Raul.Martinez.Junior. I usually post like memes and funny stuff on my page because it's just my personality. The business page is Rogue dot methods and that's where you can find most of our training videos and conversations that we have post class photos things like that and then the website is rogue dash methods and that's where you can find the schedule you can find course descriptions you could find merchandise that we sell you can find the links to classes that ed and i are doing together um, and any other collaborations that i do i think that's the best place for the schedule if you wanted to see where we we're going, I already have stuff listed through 2023. We're sold out for this year. Uh, we're very fortunate with the people that support us that the, most of our classes are done for this year, especially the close quarter contact or close, com, uh, close contact gunfighter. All of those are sold out for this year, which is fascinating that people do want to fight and, and fight in close range and understand that problem. So we'll be in Orlando in February, I believe. I don't know how far you are from Orlando, but I'm close. We'll be there. We'll be there in February and then uh, we'll have everything from combatives to pistol to carbine all in one weekend together. Beautiful. So I've got to take a round the world trip with a bunch of operators. That's this crazy fundraiser I'm part of. So if it's not that 10 days and I would definitely, uh, definitely love to attend. Well, I want to thank you so much. I mean, what I love about these conversations, we, we talked about taking deep dives into certain areas. I mean, we've gone all over the place from drug prohibition to home defense and everything in between. So uh, it's been over two hours. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, I appreciate you. I appreciate the message that you're pushing and collecting these stories, man. I think it's a wonderful thing for, for the generations that are willing to listen. So thank you for taking the time to do things like that and having people like me and everybody else you've had on here. So uh, anytime you want to have me on, you let me know. I'll make some time for you. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, uh, and I mean that I usually I'll do something and I'm like, oh man, that was like a direct interview timeline years, this, 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 uh, this was very free flowing and organic. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time talking. Thank you.